0: Thank you. Welcome to said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org. I am Father Dylan Schrader.
1: And I'm uh, Daniel Garland.
0: Today we're going to be discussing St. Thomas Aquinas and Sacred Scripture. Aquinas' use of Sacred Scripture, how Aquinas can help us to understand and integrate Sacred Scripture into the study of theology, and other related topics. Uh, So, uh, Danny, you've recently written on this, as I understand.
1: Yes. So um, one of the things that came from the uh, Aquinas, the Biblical Theologian, uh, conference back in 2019 at Ave Maria University um, I presented a paper on Aquinas' uh, theology of baptism um, and looking at how Aquinas approaches baptism in the Summa Theologica uh, compared to how he treats baptism in the uh, biblical commentaries. And what I propose there is that if you just read the Summa Theologiae, um, you're not going to get Thomas's full treatment of his theology of baptism um you you get quite a bit of treatment right but Aquinas is doing a systematic treatment in the Summa looking at matter and form um, and he's he approaches the effects of baptism as you know he uses these images of a washing that leads to new birth right and he draws off of John 3 5 there right? Unless you were born of water and spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Um, He also talks about baptism as a dying and rising to new life in Christ. Um, There he's drawing from Chrysostom who uses this imagery of when you go under the water, you enter into a tomb, right? And when you come up out of the water, you were right. You are risen with Christ to new life with Christ, which is all great. That's great stuff. But in his Biblical commentaries, namely in the Gospel of John, in Galatians, Romans, even Psalm 104 is one of the ones he likes to come back to, even in his commentary in John and Galatians, Romans, uh, is this imagery of baptism as a source of a new creation, right, and so he's, he's drawing, he's taking the um, the text itself as the springing point, the launching point for his treatment of baptism. So when he comes to passages such as John 3, John 5, the the paralytic who's healed, right, um, where he can't get into the water to heal himself because he's uh, uh, paralytic, Jesus says, arise, take up your mat and walk. And right in, in John itself, John 5, there's these baptismal imageries within the text itself and Aquinas astutely picks up on these um and he talks about right the baptism as a new creation right quasi ex nihilo right quasi ex nihilo as if from nothing because there's a movement from sin original sin which sin is a privation from nothing to Grace, right to a positive reality uh in united with christ as a new preacher right so you see aquinas in his biblical commentaries as a truly biblical theologian right so what's biblical theology is should be the next question right if aquinas is biblical theologian what's biblical theology um scholars have varied definitions of biblical theology um i would i would give a definition, um, a kind of tentative definition as this, right? So, so first of all, what is it not? It's not simply exegesis. It's not simply using scripture to do theology, right? Um, those things are good. You should be doing them. But biblical theology is a little bit more. It's reading scripture um, in light of the twofold authorship and being aware of the unity between the Old and the New Testament right? So Aquinas really, you, you get the sense that um, he's, he's doing this. He's doing this biblical theology in his commentaries. He's drawing from Genesis. He's drawing from the Old Testament um, to show the fulfillment, the reality in Christ, right? Um, now, when you come to modern exegesis, modern scripture scholars, this is something that you don't often find right you have the historical critical method um which it's it's not so much right there's uh, how, how can i phrase this um the the really the unity between the old and new testament not always but a lot of times is is forbidden right not, not forbidden but it's it's not stress it's not even taking into consideration um that there is maybe these spiritual senses here and fulfillment typology and all that um whereas for Aquinas for the church fathers that Aquinas is drawing on this is this is standard right um this is how you approach scripture you approach it theologically um because the authors are theologians, right? Uh, Joseph Ratzinger has that famous phrase that the, um, the New Testament writers are the normative theologians of sacred scripture, right? And in Aquinas' mind, Sacra Doctrina and Sacra Scripture, as we see from the first question of the Summa, Article 3, in the same paragraph, he talks about these in a way that makes them synonymous with, with each other.
0: Amen, you know, I sometimes, and this this may sound extreme, but I think sometimes people may be surprised to know that Aquinas has biblical commentaries, you know, despite the fact that that was standard for theologians of his time, that you had to lecture on sacred scripture. Of course, you had to know the Bible extremely well, Mm -hmm. and you had to teach on it uh, as part of the process of becoming a professor of theology. You know, it seems like often people go to the Summa, uh, maybe the contra Gentiles, maybe disputed questions, but you know sent- the biblical commentaries are often neglected, but they are a rich, rich source of Aquinas's thought. And uh, you know, I think the example you gave about baptism is a very helpful one. Uh, they can they complement and can and can help fill out a fuller view of his thought. So. That's an example of, of his own use of sacred scripture. But what you added there at the end about the difference between biblical theology and just using the Bible in theology is also extremely helpful. And in particular, the relationship between Sacra Doctrina and Sacra Scriptura, because, you know, as a theologian, you might use a variety of sources. And I was even taught at one point in my education that Aquinas treats a variety of authoritative sources as basically equal. So I was explicitly taught that he treats uh, the church fathers or the church councils as equal to sacred scripture, mm-hmm. despite the fact that he himself says otherwise. Yeah, he says very clearly otherwise. But I, I wasn't taught that. It wasn't until I read Aquinas himself, if you know, pretty pretty extensively, and realized what he was doing that that he privileges sacred scripture and not just as a source of information, but really as uh, what, we, what we would call the soul of
1: theology. Mm-hmm. And and if you read the Summa, right, more often than not, the said Contra is going to be a quote from scripture, right? So that tells you that, as you mentioned before, the, the primary duty for Aquinas was to comment on scripture as, as a master of sacred theology or master of the sacred page was his official title, right? Um this is what occupied most of his time, right? It, the, the Summa was for instruction for uh, his own order. It wasn't something that he taught his all the students, right? Um, and the Summa was meant to give you the theology so that you can go back and read scripture in a way that is fruitful, right? So if you're just reading the Summa, Right, you're only doing half the work. If you're if you're ignoring the biblical commentaries, you're ignoring what Thomas spent most of his time on in the classroom, right? Um, and right, this this is something that is where we're starting to um, to recover this the sense of Aquinas as biblical theologian. In probably the past forty years, there has been uh, more and more attention to this these biblical commentaries of saint thomas aquinas um the uh his commentary in the psalms was just translated by uh, a fellow classmate of mine at ave sister albert marie Sirmanski. so give her a shout out to her um i think she bilocates like she's amazing um she uh yeah so she wrote her her dissertation on well it was a translation on um i i i have it i just got it um on uh, Albert the Great's, um, on the body of the Lord, right? So she translated that while doing coursework and like 400 page translation. So I'm pretty sure she does by locate um, But uh, what were we talking? Yeah, so so Aquinas, is, his commentaries are coming out more. We're, we're, I think all of them now are translated into English, which is, um, uh, I think, is that right? I think we have all of them now. Uh, it's commentary on Isaiah is out, it's right there on my desk. Um, the Psalms are out. Um, are Job,
0: me? I think, is done. that's another big one. Yes, that's a big I, I one. I don't know if that's translated or not.
1: Yeah, if I think not, it is. I think it is. If it's not, it should be. Yeah, it if, it's not, be if it's not, it should be.
0: I, but I think you're right. I think the biblical commentaries may all be translated into English, which is which is a, a great boon to us. Um, I know the commentary on the sentences is still being translated. Yes. yes. Um, I've been a little bit involved with that. But, you know, the biblical commentaries, yeah, as you mentioned, that's what Aquinas spent the majority of his life working with. And it's, it's really a shame that sometimes theologians become so professionalized that we almost lose touch with what our subject matter is about, which is God. You know, we're trying to tell the truth about God, right.
1: which and, is primarily in sacred scripture.
0: Yeah. And, and so you think about who St. Thomas Aquinas is and who all the great theologians are, you know, they're people with a deep relationship with God. So Aquinas didn't just study the Bible. He prayed with the Bible. He prayed the divine office. Uh, he celebrated the mass. And this was a huge part of his life. And he internalized sacred scripture in a, in a living way through the liturgical action of the church and in his own personal prayer. And that is what allowed him to have kind of a supernatural insight into the meaning of faith. Um, and I would say, you know, through the gifts of the Holy Spirit that any, I mean, anyone with enough intelligence and time and, and leisure can memorize maybe the catechism or whatever. You can memorize a lot of facts about our faith, but to be able to have a deep insight into it requires the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Aquinas had. And that's what the great theologians had. The Bible was a part of their life in a way that it really is not for us anymore, but should be. Mm-hmm. And I think the church has really encouraged that. I think the divine office and Lexio Divina are good examples of that. Uh, Mark Clark recently gave a lecture. Uh, it was on the occasion of his being uh, honored and well, and deservedly so uh, in which he talked about some of his work in uh, editing uh, manuscripts um, from the early to high middle ages. And he talked about the use of sacred scripture in the development of other areas of thought including logic and semantics and things like that in a way that people uh, medievalists have really not thought about or have have kind of glossed over because of this compartmentalization that's happened you know people who specialize in the bible look at the bible people mm-hmm. who specialize in medieval studies but in a more humanistic way might look at other, you know, the uh, nat, you know, natural philosophy or something, people who specialize in logic look at treatises on logic and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The thing is, you know, when you're reading the biblical commentaries or even sermons on scripture, uh, all of a sudden something might come out that advances a, a totally seemingly unrelated field of human thought. So Aquinas might have to bring in some powerful semantic distinctions or distinctions in logic. And even those earlier than him, it, in other words, the Middle Ages was, was a time period in which the Bible played a much larger role than I think we realize. Yeah. And perhaps theology today would do well to go back to something like that, you know, to say, maybe you can't memorize the entire Bible, but you've definitely got to read it repeatedly and thoroughly and frequently and it's got to become a big part of your life or you're not going to be able to do the science of theology
1: exactly exactly yes um you're, you're making the comment about um two things there first uh the this division of theology and two separate sciences, right? And it's all disparate, um, right? Exeges- exegetes stay over here, theolog- systematic theologians stay over there, moral theolo- theologians stay over there. But when you read Aquinas, when you read um, the church fathers, right, when they are approaching scripture, moral theology comes up, uh, right? Exegesis, systematic theology, dogmatic, right? It's, it's all together coming from Scripture as the soul of sacred theology, right? It's, it's the source of, um, it's the living source of our discipline, right? Um, you cannot do theology without scripture, right? Uh, full stop. Um, and, and that's something that Aquinas would have said, yes, amen, it's something that the church fathers would have said, yes, amen. I'm reading uh, St. Basil the Great's Hexameron right now, um, right? His commentary on the six days of creation. And he's bringing in the pre-Socratics. He's bringing in um, uh, uh, natural, uh, natural science. He's bringing in um, natural, philosoph- natural theology, right? Philosophy. Um, and, and you might say, well, wait, how, how is all this coming up? from the six days of creations because he's in tune with the text and the text is bringing up all this, uh, material for him to comment on. And these are homilies, right? So his poor parishioners right they're, they're, you know, they're Eastern. So they're standing up the whole time. Right. And uh, Oh goodness. The liturgy is long enough and Basil's homilies are even longer. Right. So, um, he, he actually, in some of them, he says, I'm going to keep this short, but, and then he goes on for several pages. Um, homilists
0: break that promise sometimes
1: yes um but but that's the thing like this this notion of um if if you're a systematic theologian well you don't touch scripture if you're an exegete well don't worry about theology you don't have to be up on right the theology of the trinity sacramental theology and whatnot um that's a recipe for disaster right because if you're exegeting scripture well as as Ratzinger says, right, the normative theologians are the authors of Scripture, so they are doing theology. How are you going to understand what they're saying if you don't know theology itself, right? Um, if you right, they're they're writing uh, their books within the context, the historical context of the living, um, um, breathing, worshiping church. Right. So to right do what the historical critical uh, scholars do to wrench scripture out of its natural context of the life of the church is to really miss the majority of what scripture intends to convey, which is right the resurrected Christ who um, is calling us to union with him. Right, um, so that we become right. As, um, St. Uh, Irenaeus, right? Um, so God has become man so that man could become God. That's the essence of scripture, right? The incarnation so that we can be, uh, uh, to take Aquinas in his commentary on scripture, right? So that we can become new creations in Christ, right? And, and be uh, divinized in him. Um, this is This is something that modern biblical scholarship in large part misses. Right. And, and so you, if you're reading biblical commentaries from these uh, historical critical commentators, uh, not all of them, but the majority of them, you're not getting exegete you're not getting theology. Right. Um, It's strict linguistic, philological exegesis. Um, Every now and then they may have some theological thing to say but um then they quickly go back to their exegesis. Um this this trend is is changing within I would say the last 15 15 years or so uh where more and more young scholars are um really looking at uh scripture theologically, right? Doing biblical theology and and seeing and and theologians as well seeing that well we need scripture, right? And and you can't be a theologian without scripture, right? Um, you can't—I would say—you can't be an exegete without theology.
0: It is interesting, you know, you, to know the reciprocal relationship that you mentioned there. Uh, that on the one hand, it's it should be clearly impossible to really be a theologian without sacred scripture and a thorough and thorough knowledge and engagement. And really uh, living, breathing, personally integrated relationship with scripture. But on the other hand, can I really study the Bible even by the historical critical method without faith? You know, Would such a thing be possible? I know there are people who try. There are people who study the Bible as just an ancient document. And perhaps they have some degree of success. Because on the human level, it could be analyzed linguistically and culturally and things archaeologically and things like that. But you're, as you say, you're taking it out of its entire context, which is addressed to the people of God, to people of faith. And I wonder hey, how far, how far can that go? How far could I read the Bible uh, without faith and even get just the literal sense of it, even just get the human sense of it. Uh, I'm, I feel like I would be missing out on quite a bit there. Um, I don't know, the other, the, the other question I wanna ask, and maybe it's a little bit of a provocative one, is before the development of the modern historical critical method, to go back to Thomas Aquinas, for instance, I think a, a criticism that people sometimes have is that the medieval theologians and the church fathers read scripture in a really naive way. Maybe they knew the text really well, but perhaps they weren't that attentive to linguistic concerns or to textual concerns or issues like that. Um, I, you know, I was taught that Aquinas didn't know Greek and didn't know Hebrew. However, I have found in reading his scripture commentaries and other places as well, not infrequently, he brings up the meaning of grammatical constructions or particular words in Greek or in Hebrew, and a lot of that I'm sure he's getting from Jerome and other church fathers, but it seems to me a stretch to say that he didn't know Greek or Hebrew at all,
1: Uh, and
0: and even if he wasn't fluent, he certainly cared about it. Exactly about the accuracy of the text. And so talking- I don't know. I want to ask what what is your what is your estimation of the use by say Thomas Aquinas of things that we would now consider part of the historical critical method, such as linguistic concerns, textual concerns, and mm-hmm. things like that.
1: Yeah. So I mean yeah he definitely he definitely does comment on on the meaning of greek words in the text and more greek than hebrew but he does he does there are places where he does comment on the hebrew um which as you said he may begin from jerome or augustine um there is the orvieto period where he has his flourishing of greek texts right um you start to see him citing more of the greek fathers um so there's 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 a sensibility there to the original languages. So it's, and, and he's very astute in his commentary um, that there's certain arguments he'll make where he'll say in the Latin, right, we have this, but in the Greek, here's what's going on. Um, so one, he's attentive to the text. He's attentive to variations in the text. Um, and you can go back to Augustine on, um, De doctrina Christiana, right? So he talks about textual criticism there. Um, he, he talks about um, uh, translation issues and so forth. So to say that the the fathers Aquinas are completely oblivious to these things is uh, a mischaracterization at best. Um, they right they they aren't as right the historical critical tools that they use obviously aren't as developed as they are now um for better or for worse um but there is there is a sensibility to these things and yes some of the patristic and maybe even aquinas here and there um some of their uh exegesis may seem a bit naive and we we may say well okay that's he's doing the best with what he has um we wouldn't go in that direction now, but there are other times where we say, oh, well, he's got it. He's this, this makes sense. Or, or maybe the things that we discover now we go back and read Aquinas thinking that, Oh, we have this fresh insight into scripture and Aquinas is there right before us already. Um, which, which is quite frustrating, but exciting at the same time. Um, he seems to do that a lot. Right. Um, so like, the more you read Aquinas' biblical commentaries, the more you get an appreciation for uh, his his attentiveness to the sacred page, right? And that he is reading it, right, within uh, or, or with the same spirit in which it is written, right, to quote Dave Verbum. As you said, right, Aquinas is one who is infused with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he makes full use of them. Um, he is when when he's reading sacred scripture he's participating in the very thing that he's reading and teaching um and that's what makes him so great right no so now i don't want it to seem like i'm saying here or that we're saying when we talk about thomas as biblical theologian and we should go back to doing theology the way thomas does that we should just read the commentaries on scripture and forget about the summa forget about contra gentiles forget about the sentences commentaries de potencia whatever we're not saying that one thing that i would recommend is right especially the gospel of john his commentary on john right terrell suggests that he's writing this during the orvieto period um, around the same time that he's writing the tertia pars and you could see the interpenetration there right right talking about the God who became flesh, right? The the humanity yet divinity of Christ and the Tertia Pars opens up with, right? uh, Reasons motives for the incarnation, right? Christ as fully God and fully man and all that that entails theologically. He's drawing from the commentary on John. Um, I would recommend reading both side by side, right? Or when the Summa gives scriptural passages, Um, especially in the side contrast go and look and see what aquinas says in the biblical commentaries right to read just the summa without the commentaries is only to get half of or a portion of aquinas's full thought um and and aquinas is is good enough that we owe it to him to understand his whole thought not just a portion of it
0: yeah, that's an excellent uh, suggestion. Practically speaking, and and uh, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the chronology of Aquinas's works as well. You know, lest we think that he did all the biblical commentaries while he was early in his car- career, progressing toward becoming a master of theology and then quickly moved on to the real subject matter, which was writing his own textbook yeah. and things like that. Uh, it, you know, as if scripture is just a stepping stone to theology and not something that you have to deal with uh, and engage with, and not really the point of soccer doctrina to try to understand the word of God. Uh, and, you know, I would add uh, he's, he's preaching. We have, we have some sermons. Mm-hmm. We have uh we have some addresses in other contexts for, for the Dominicans and things like that. And also with other theologians of this time period, at least those who are priests, we often have preaching mm-hmm. uh, and certainly for the church fathers. So we have an engagement with scripture in a liturgical setting mm-hmm. and in a, in a very different way in comparison to many homilies today, they would be much more in depth. And uh, contain much more academic instruction, uh, but they would also contain, you know, exhortation and the application to the spiritual life. And I think it's important, yeah, just to remember that context for, in a sense, doing theology uh, also within a liturgical context. Uh, just as we pray with sacred scripture, we also theologize within the context of the mass and through preaching and things like that. Um. I want to ask your opinion about we've been talking about the historical critical method, which really is just an umbrella term for a whole variety of different methods uh, of which there are many variations and many different schools of thought and things like that. And I want to ask your opinion for us as theologians today, people trying to do theology today in the way that the church is asking us to do what role can the historical critical method play for us? I don't want to make it sound like we're rejecting it altogether and, and trying to go back or, or reclaim kind of a purely fundamentalistic approach, but to say, well, what, what can the historical critical method, now that it's developed and that it's been used, what can that offer to us that maybe people like Aquinas didn't have?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot it can offer to us, right? Don't, don't um, I don't want it to be like, I'm, I'm saying completely throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Um, there's a lot it can offer to us once we um, look at it with critical lenses, right? Uh, once we recognize what historical criticism is, which is a good thing, but we have to come at it with um Right. Recognize the biases that it has and that it has had in the past 200 years. Um, Right. You know, there's this this famous quote about uh, Velhausen, who when he was presented with the JPD, the documentary hypothesis. Right. Um, He didn't really know the reasons for it. He just said, well, that sounds that sounds right. It must be right. And so he accepted it. Right. Without having any critical scholarly investigation into it. Right. Um, he just he just took it. It for him, it's so, it sounded right, so it must be right. Right. Well, we would say that's bad scholarship, right? Um, you, you don't just accept it without seeing the reasons why it's proposed and what it's doing. Um, so when you use the tools of historical critical method, um, textual criticism, right. Um, uh, um, form criticism, things like that. These are helpful. These can, they can be very enlightening. Um, take, take a, the approach JPD, right. Um, well, I wouldn't subscribe to the, the breaking up of the text into the Yahwist, the Alois and so forth, right. The Deuteronomist. um, there is something that, they, that the historical critical exegetes are seeing there, right? That we shouldn't just overlook and say, oh, it's the historical critical method, right? Just ignore that. No, there's something going on, right? Why, is, why, why in Genesis 1 do we have Elohim and in Genesis 2 we have Yahweh Elohim, right? Some, the, the historical critics notice something. That others didn't. There's something going on now. Is this two different authors, two source materials, right? Or is there something more going on, right, with the sacred author, right, that that he wants us to see that Genesis one is a broad view of creation, right? And so you're going to use the generic name for God, Elohim, but Genesis two is not necessarily a second uh, creation account, but a honing in on man. The high point of god's creation god's relationship to man whom he forms out of the dust places him in the garden provides him with everything right uh and there you have the covenant name yahweh right so god is relating to his creature who he's entering into a covenant with and through adam all creation Right, so the covenant name is going to be used there. That's something we should notice. That's something that's very important. Now, the uh, documentary hypothesis, right? The historical critics noticed this, but their conclusion was was uh, right. They went. I would say they went astray with their conclusion. But what they noticed is valuable, right? Um, so there there is a use for the historical critical method, right? Um, we, we need to pr- approach scripture historically. It's written in a particular historical context and time and people, right? Now, what is that? As we said before, it's the people of God, right? Who are living the life of the church who are um, living what it means to be the resurrected body of Christ, right? Um, the church. And so, to say, right, as some, some people want to say, some scholars want to say that um, you cannot get the full meaning of, text, of of the text without historical critical method. Well, as Michael Dauphiné and Matthew Levering point out in their in their book, um, Holy People, Holy Land, that would be to say that, right, it it wasn't, right, for the, the previous 1800 years, we had the church had no clue what scripture was about, right? Um, that would be disastrous to really follow through on the logical uh, consequences of that, right? That would be to say that Thomas Aquinas didn't really understand scripture, that would be to say that the apostolic fathers, right, who learned from the apostles did not know what scripture was about, right? Um, can you imagine trying to say that? That Irenaeus, who is the spiritual grandson of John the Apostle, the beloved disciple, didn't know what John's gospel was about, right? Or or what now? Now, Saint Peter had trouble with Paul, right? Um, so so maybe maybe we could give him all right. Maybe he didn't really fully understand Paul, but but I mean, that's that's a huge thing to say. Do we really want to say that for the past 1800 years, the church was clueless on the true meaning of scripture? And thankfully, the historical critical scholars came along and they showed us the light. In the meantime, they denied the supernatural. And so, right, forget about God, forget about grace, forget about uh, the resurrection, the incarnation, um, any any supernatural element, right? A priori is dismissed, right? Right. Um, that doesn't seem like a uh, viable method, right? Um, If we take it that way.
0: That's very helpful. And, you know, you got me thinking about how I would approach the Bible as a person, perhaps without faith or maybe interested in the question of faith uh, and how to connect that with St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, so I want to, you know, I want to ask your, your opinion, your thoughts about this. Does Aquinas, I mean, certainly he approaches the Bible as a person who believes in Christ and therefore believes that the Bible is the word of God. Does Aquinas, however, ever use scripture in a more purely apologetic way? So uh, for, for instance, there is an approach that is sometimes taken in apologetics today, as well as classically, that we could look at the Gospels as just purely historical documents and you know, leaving faith aside or bracketing it out to say, well, these, these biographies about Jesus tell us something with some accuracy about Jesus of Nazareth. And then on the basis of what we read, we would be invited to an act of faith to say that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, must be ultimately the Son of God, based on what we've read on a purely natural level in these historical documents, and that we can be reasonably sure about that. Uh, and then we make an act of faith. So, bef- you know, in other words, that the, the, the Gospels, and uh, maybe may other parts of scripture, like the prophecies of the Old Testament, could be approached on a purely natural level for apologetic reasons. Now, while Aquinas certainly approaches Scripture as a man of faith, does he ever take that other approach? And if he does, what is it like? Does he ever look at the Bible bracketing his faith out, maybe for apologetic reasons or for other reasons?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I'm trying to think of, of if if he if he does that, you know, there there is. Um, there is a way in which you could you could say kind of does that um right and i have argued that he kind of he preempts um c.s lewis's lord liar lunatic argument right so that he in his commentary on john um he'll he'll ask the question right so that you know he doesn't phrase it obviously as c.s lewis does and um or or um to give my friend john sehorn uh credit he's pointed out Quick to point out, well, it was Frank Sheed who really came up with the Lord-Liar. we argument first, and then C.S. Lewis kind of went away with it, right? Um, but C.S. Lewis is more famous for it, right? But Aquinas sort of does this too, right? This this notion that um, he's his interlocutors, right? The Arians, right? So it's, it's he's not he's arguing against those who would deny that Christ is divine. He says, look. Um, if you read the text of scripture of the gospel of John, it's clear that the people that Jesus is arguing with, right, they clearly thought he was divine. In John 5, right, um, it says the Jews, right, went to stone him because he said, I and the father, right, um, my father is working and I am working still, right? And right, they, they went to stone him because he's making himself equal to God right? And thus God himself. And he says, look, you you, you foolish Aryans, even even the Jews can clearly see that he's calling himself God. Why can't you see that he's God, right? He's not subordinated. He's equal with God, right? If the Jews can see this, why can't you, right? So he does do things like that, um, that, right? Look, he's, he's, he's not lying about this right and there's other places where he's like look um he's not a liar right he's he talks about um satan is is the father of lies right and the the man killer um from the beginning right in john 8 um and he says look jesus right he can rule him out as being a liar right he doesn't bear witness to himself but even if he did right it would be true Right, great drawing from the text of john a because he's god himself um right and he's not a lunatic and he talks about the wisdom of of the words that jesus speaks and he says right no lunatic speaks like this right so there are certain points where he is making these apologetic turns um which which i would you know kind of preempt c.s lewis i don't know c.s lewis read aquinas's commentary on john um but you know maybe maybe frank she did um (laughs)
0: I really appreciate that. That's really interesting to see his use of, of the text there. And as you mentioned, his engagement with the Aryans, mm-hmm. uh, who had, I guess, suppose their counterparts in his own day as well, to some extent, uh, that he's engaged, that he he does engage in a kind of apologetics. Uh, and he wrote the Contra Gentiles, which is an apologetic work. Exactly. I, I guess part, and I know it's a difficult question, and I've been thinking about this myself, and part of me thinks you know, maybe that question arises for me because of a difference in this the state of theology today. Uh, particularly if we are going to engage in a real biblical theology, we're gonna make we're gonna make the Bible the soul of theology as it's meant to be. I almost feel like theologians today feel compelled to give a kind of apologia for using the Bible or for or for the accuracy of the biblical text, like almost as if. We can't use the Bible in theology unless we first establish the reliability of the text on purely natural grounds, mm-hmm. and almost engage in a kind of apologetics. Uh, and apologetics certainly has its place, but you know Aquinas was a th- was a theologian, and, and while he he wrote some apologetic works, I mean the Re- gentiles is quite lengthy. So it's a lengthy apologetic work. Most of that is dedicated to removing obstacles to faith. Uh, it's not it's not focused on establishing the historical reliability of the old testament or the new testament or things like that it's focused on clarifying and on yeah you know, removing obstacles of a philosophical or theological nature and i wonder if that's because he has this confidence that the grace of god will lead people to the act of faith if those obstacles are removed mm-hmm. or to put it another way, if he has if he has greater confidence in the biblical text than we do.
1: I, I would say he does, yes. I, I would say he has greater confidence in the authority of the text, its inspiration. Um, Aquinas is... is right, We've talked about the primary authorship, as we, we would say today. Aquinas is clear that these are the words of the Holy Spirit, right? These are not just mere words, right? What he's reading is god speaking to man right and so this is something that modern man has a problem with right so think of the historical critics who right away deny the supernatural well if you deny the supernatural de facto then this is just a text that's maybe a great text a brilliant text but it's just a text among others right it's like shakespeare right shakespeare is great and wonderful but we wouldn't say it's inspired um right uh, so if we approach scripture that way um yeah if that, if that is our if our main concern is to um i guess how should i say it? that's that's not aquinas's concern that's a given right um whereas for us yeah we have more um our our interlocutors are going to be more skeptical and there is work that's been done i mean um Kenneth Kitchen on the reliability of the Old Testament. Walter Kaiser is the Old Testament uh, relevant and reliable. These are great works um, uh, done by Protestants, and they they've right looking at biblical archaeology, and they've shown over and over again um, that right you can compare this, the Bible to say the Book of Mormon. Right. Um, The Bible over and over again has been validated by archaeology, whereas archaeology completely shreds the Book of Mormon. Right. There's no basis whatsoever. Um, And so over and over again, um, the the Bible, Old and New Testament, has been validated. Right. These these problem texts where scholars have wrestled over. Right. We 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 don't know it mentions something in scripture, but we have no mentioning of it in in history up to this point. Within the last hundred year, hundred years, archaeology has shown, hey, it did in fact exist exactly as scripture said it did. Right. Um, I, I'm trying to think of there's there's New Testament. Um, I mentioned two old testament um books that are good on this New Testament, um. Uh, there's there's a Walter Kaiser's book is the Old Testament version of the New Testament I think it's FF Bruce uh, he wrote this this little book is the New Testament relevant and reliable right and Kaiser has is the Old Testament uh, as an homage to him um, one of the one of the books that I found quite fascinating on this topic is right at first glance you, you would say well this isn't this is right. It's going to be a popular work. It's not going to be very good. But the case for Christ by Lee Strobel um, is, is fantastic on these things about the reliability of scripture. Um, he's interviewing the top biblical scholars, uh, Yamauchi, um, um, who else? Um, I'm drawing a blank And all the guys he interviews, but right, he, he gets out of the way and lets them speak. So it, it's, it's a popular book, but at the same time, there's, there's scholarly depth to it. Um, so I'd highly recommend if anyone's worried about the reliability of, um, the old and new Testament, that's, that's a good book to, to start with.
0: That's very helpful. Yeah. And, you know, so there was, there are some ways certainly that we have benefited in a way that Aquinas, uh, didn't, didn't have, you know, he didn't have access to all the archeological finds Mm -hmm. for that matter, the 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 texts that are available to us, uh, you know, we have critical editions that are the work of, of great textual work, the Dead Sea Scrolls and, mm-hmm. and things like this. Uh, tremendous amounts of, of uh, scholarship have gone into helping us to understand and to appreciate the Bible. And those are great tools that can, that can help us both in apologetics and in theology proper. Um, but Aquinas, you know, we keep going back to him and the church keeps going back to him because once we've, once we've done the apologetic work, so to speak, or once we have made an act of faith, once we've become people of faith, faith seeks understanding. And we continue to live with sacred scripture. We continue to pray with it. We continue to use it. And it continues to feed us every day. And our faith wants to grow and it wants to understand. We want to understand more. So theology always has a place. It's like we never we never get so far that we've exhausted everything. And now we have it over and done with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Aquinas, I think can be a guide for us in that, you know, in going deeper and deeper with the, with the biblical text. I don't think Aquinas ever thought that, well, I've read this, this verse or this chapter and now I'm done with it. I'll never go back to it again. I have nothing more to say about it. Um, At the end of his commentary on the gospel of John, he talks about this, that even if the world existed for a hundred thousand years, there could always be more books written about Christ yeah. and they would never be able to describe uh, the things that he said and did a, yeah. in all their meaning and all their significance, which I find, I find very beautiful. It's a contrast with the beginning, the beginning of John's gospel and Aquinas' commentary begins with God's word, mm-hmm. his single word, yeah, which is adequate, totally adequate to himself. And the end is this: this sense that human human words about God, even if they were infinite, would never be sufficient.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and right, he's getting that from the text too, right, of, of John's Gospel. And right, John uh, Aquinas is right. He's a Johannine theologian, right? He's he's drinking richly from the from the uh, Gospel of John. And right, as a theologian who embodies john the theologian right in the east we call john the theologian he is the theologian aquinas right is is in that uh that line of theologians right just like Aquinas, uh, just like john um one of the right the the beauty of what aquinas shows us in his approach to scripture is that you right what he does is he brings the full force of reason um upon scripture right he approaches scripture not just theologically but philosophically right um and and you see this in his commentary on john 114 right um in in john 114 he devotes a whole lecture to that one verse the word became flesh and dwelt among us and he shows right he, he very astutely um shows that the metaphysics of of the incarnation here help to dispel or help to uh, uh, um, safeguard against the the various ancient heresies, right? Nestorianism, uh, Apollinarianism, Arianism, monophysitism, right? He tackles all of these, right? Just from this one line, right? His his approach, his philosophical approach to scripture says, well, um, if the word became flesh, right? there's it it, right there's he's making this as the word becomes flesh right there's there's a true incarnation there there's not a swallowing up of um the the flesh by the word right because then he wouldn't be he wouldn't be fully man there wouldn't be an incarnation right um so monophysitism right that that's gone right and it's the word who becomes flesh right so arianism he's still the word right he doesn't cast off his divinity right and so he goes through all these um different uh, uh, interpretations of this one verse and right. All these heresies are completely refuted. It's, it's beautiful.
0: Exactly. So starting with the proposition, the word became flesh through semantics, what they would call logic, what we would call semantics to metaphysics to say, okay, this thing must be, this thing signifies this, and this Mm -hmm. must be true. So what are the conditions in reality that would make this true? Yeah. What the, uh, you know, he, he follows that so frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and to think that it was actually theology that pushed the development of other sciences, like logic, mm-hmm. you know, the, the desire to be able to uh, explain in, in semantic terms how you can say the word was with God and the word was God. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> How is that possible? Uh, even on a linguistic level and the, 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 the think that the, the, uh, as much as uh, re, uh, as much as uh, reason can serve uh, faith, faith can also serve reason. It can push mm-hmm. us to develop our limits of natural knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and that's a beautiful example of that. This scripture, scripture says this faith tells us this must be true. I believe whatever the son of God has said, I believe this must be true. Now I want to understand how it's true and I'm going to work at it. I'm going to put in the intellectual effort to develop the human sciences that will assist me to understanding the truth of scripture, rather than assuming that I know better than scripture and that the state of human science as it is now knows better than scripture.
1: Yeah you know there's uh, it reminds me when you were speaking of that um there's there's the debate over um right the aquinas's approach to the one god right is is he getting this from philosophy or is he getting it from the revelation in the burning bush to moses in exodus 314 right um and and as you said there right the the primary thing is exodus 314 i am Right. And Aquinas is is thinking about this, meditating upon what does it mean to be I am? Right? What does that mean for God to be SA? Right? As SA Ipsum. He is existence himself. I am right. So you you've got the grammatical phrase, I am. What is how how does that work in right essay right um how does that work grammatically to a movement to philosophy that he is being itself right and and he's not just a gradation of being right and the the highest order of the genus no he is existence itself right um so this is this is Aquinas drawing from scripture and having scripture really move him um in his meditation upon it and in this, this is the guiding principle of his theology, of his philosophy, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so much more that could be said. Uh, I'm, as, you, as you mentioned, I'm grateful that in recent decades and in recent years, people are taking a new interest in this and really making available Aquinas' commentaries and sermons in English, and also just uh, giving them more attention and, and, and helping with this Um, And I think we could follow his example and make scripture a greater part of our life in the liturgy and in personal prayer. And really, even with just the hard work of memorizing it or or internalizing it, I think that will just continue to serve us better and better. So we continue to look to the example of Thomas Aquinas and others as uh, great biblical theologians. May they pray for us and may they continue to guide us. Amen. We well, thank you all for listening. This has been Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org.